get started this morning. And uh, first of all, my name is Diana Wilding, for those of you that do not know me. And um, I am really excited to do this this morning. Uh, we've not done the double workshop like uh, lectures like this before, and so it's going to be fun and exciting uh, to be able to do that. And uh, they wanted me to let you know that your notes are where you're sitting. The notes for my talk is on top, and the notes for Don's is underneath. So uh, that way you'll know which ones to use uh, as we start this. And so um, we have witnessed in our previous uh, lessons that a new covenant of grace was established through Christ's death and resurrection. So one of my themes this morning is going to be grace. And then we've also noticed each week as we finished our lesson, the last page that recites Hebrews 10.23. And it encourages us to hold fast to Christ so that we don't grow weary or lose heart. So this second theme that I'm going to talk about today is holding fast to Christ and what that looks like in our everyday life. So first, I will be reviewing briefly the 18 verses that we have in our lesson today. And what I've done to simplify that is to, I divided them into four different sections. So let's begin and uh, talk about the emphasis the author has placed on each of these four sections in our 18 verses. So in verses 1 through 4, the author shows how the sacrifices of the law could not completely remove the guilt of sin. And if the sacrifices had worked, then there would no longer have been a need for those sacrifices to have been offered. And then... In verse 1 of our lesson, we see to make perfect. That's making reference to our standing in God's sight. As you know, we are not perfect. Perfect is how he sees us once we've been covered with the blood of Christ. To be made perfect includes total cleansing from sin in order that we can have a clean conscience. If we are aware of sin that has not been confessed and forgiven, it causes us to hesitate in our drawing near to God. If we are not drawing near, then we will begin to lean away instead of leaning into Him. And then if an earth-shattering event arrives in our life, and you're leaning away, you will struggle in your attempts to hold fast to him. And this was illustrated for us in Genesis with Adam and Eve. As soon as they sinned, they tried to hide from God's presence. They leaned away. They didn't want to face him because of what they had done. And every parent has, ex has the same experience. You come home, and your child avoids you. When you track your child down, they won't look you in the eye. He or she doesn't want to draw near to you because they have a guilty conscience. And even our dogs or our cats have that same sense of guilt where they avoid you if they know they have done something wrong. 
So we see also in verses 5 through 10, the author shows that Christ's obedience to God's will at the cross set aside the old covenant sacrifices. And by Christ's final sacrifice, he provided our perfect standing before God because of his grace. And in verses 11 through 14, the author illustrates the totality of our forgiveness by contrasting the unfinished, repetitive, sacrificial ministry of the Old Testament priests with the finished, all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. And then we see in verses 15 through 18, and particularly in the second half of the verse, which is 16, God promises to put his laws upon his people's hearts and to write them on their minds. Then he said, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. When God does not remember our sins, it does not mean that he's forgetful, but rather that he will not bring up our sins against us in judgment. Our sins are totally forgiven because of God's covenant decree of grace. So the authors so the author of this book sums it up when he says, "Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering of sin. The Old Testament sacrifices are now rendered worthless, obsolete. What they had pointed to in the past, which was just a shadow of the things that were to come, Jesus has completely fulfilled through the cross. Believers are now under the new covenant, and through his grace, we can, we can now receive God's total forgiveness. So how would you describe grace and how it embraces a believer's life? Well, truly, the uniqueness of grace is so powerful because it's a combination of mercy and the great love that God has for each of us. And I once heard grace described as grace alone comes through our faith in Christ alone that's been given as a gift by our triune God in order to save us. So only by his grace that floods into our soul at the moment we believe by faith in Christ can we be saved. Now through any of our, not through any of our good works. And Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So often in our everyday lives, we become so distracted that we forget to be on the lookout for his grace that enters our life daily as a gift from heaven, landing in sometimes the most unexpected places. And I've concluded in my life that as often as, as God has shown his love towards me, that's how often I have experienced his bountiful grace in my life. If I would try to separate 
His generous grace from His abundant, life-giving love and mercy. Well, for me, that would be impossible. As believers, the new covenant provided us with new minds and hearts. We have been infused by the Holy Spirit with a desire to know Him fully. Not in a superficial way, and not in just a child's Sunday school way, but a deeply committed relationship. Just like a good friendship that we've grown to enjoy, a personal kind of relationship with Jesus takes time and it takes fellowship. With our new minds and our hearts, we've been invited by Jesus to abide in his love, to rest in it, to stay and linger in it, and not to rush and hurry through it. So how do we, as followers of Christ, absorb into our everyday living habits that can cause us to be able to hold fast to Jesus? What does that look like? What do those words look like as they form into a daily action that's a part of our life? When we are holding fast in our hope, do others observe our lives and see him as faithful? While Hebrews 10.23 tells us he is faithful, I have to ask myself, am I faithful? Am I holding fast to him when my life appears to be going just fine? Or do I only hold fast when my life is crumbling around me? My observations show that as a believer, we hold fast during the calm times as well as during the difficult times. Holding fast through the good times appears to be easy, but often I've discovered that I can get easily distracted and drift away from holding fast during those easy times. But when a tragedy or difficult circumstance or happens, well, that's when holding fast, it looks different and it feels different. So let's look at what holding fast should look like in the everyday life of a believer. Listening this morning, you, may, you might be able to say that your life is going along fairly smoothly and things are really good. And with that in mind, perhaps just knowing and trusting that he's there is enough. For you, perhaps holding fast to Jesus would look like this. You may feel at peace. You are trusting and depending on him. You're resting in his knowledge, his mercies, and his grace, and his love. You are growing in his knowledge and enjoying the wisdom his grace has provided. And I've been in that sweet place, and it feels wonderful to be there. And I'm so thankful that God's generous grace allows us to have those segments of time in our lives where we are comfortably holding fast and enjoying his promises. So while working on this lesson, I began to ponder the contrast between what holding fast during the good times looks like versus what holding fast when life is falling apart. I was reminded of the 23rd Psalm, where it begins by saying 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the righteousness for his namesake. And those verses clearly show someone holding on during those good times. But you'll notice the 23rd Psalm continues on with walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And then the verse goes on to say, having a table prepared with his enemies. These verses clearly show someone holding on during the hard times. Through the grace of God, we all have times of resting in green pastures and walking beside still waters when we are at peace. But many of us will also experience circumstances causing us to feel like we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. This psalm shows us that we will most likely experience both of those at various times in our lives, providing us a perfect contrast in what it means to hold fast during the good and the difficult times in our lives. The psalmist concludes this psalm by reminding himself what he knows to be true of God. When he says, you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And with his goodness and mercy, following me all the days of my life. Now that's assurance. Through my eyes, I see us as not so different from the psalmist, as we often face difficult circumstances that leave our hearts feeling desperately broken and weary. In the middle of that desperate moment, we find ourselves yearning for him, searching to remember how to hold fast. You may be listening this morning, and you feel like an earthquake has been shaking your life and turning it upside down. Some listening may have a difficult diagnosis to deal with for themselves or a loved one. Some may be holding on to a marriage that's crumbling, and they don't know how to save it. Or some of you may be mourning the death of someone close to you. There are numerous difficulties among us that can rock our world. So let's explore for a couple of minutes this morning what holding fast looks like when our Lord allows you to enter into an earth-shattering period in your life. So when you enter into your earth-shattering circumstances, You will, find yourself <clears throat> you will find yourself not just holding fast, but grasping for Jesus. You want to hold fast so badly that the yearning is palpable, as though you're experience, experiencing hunger from a week-long fast. You concentrate on the grip to make sure you don't let go, thinking your very survival depends on it. While you're searching for the faith you know is in your heart, you hold on even more firmly to your grip on him. Your prayers begin to take on a pleading, asking him to shower you with his merciful and life-sustaining grace. Discovering that he is also holding on, 
holding on to you strengthens your resolve. And you're knowing that he will see you through. While I was going through what was described above, I discovered that often during our difficult events, we don't always recognize, nor do we experience the fullness of his grace. But later, when the fog lifts, you start to realize the magnitude of his grace that has completely surrounded you in the middle of those circumstances. And through the gift of insight, your eyes are opened, discovering a renewed, heartfelt appreciation for his mercy and his love. And you desire to share with others your experience of his goodness. From your previous peaceful times in, of laying in green pastures, you've gathered a storehouse of faith from your routines that you've intentionally allowed to absorb into your everyday life, such as regularly reading his word, attending your Bible studies, regular prayer time, and developing strong friendships. Out of your intentional daily routines, your faith becomes a mighty force, ready to hold fast when an earth-shattering event occurs. With that storehouse of faith, you've created within your heart a willingness an expectation for the power of God to be a welcome guest into your shaky circumstances. And after the death of my son in a tragic car accident, I needed desperately to listen for God's instructions. But it was difficult because I was living inside a fog that wouldn't seem to lift. But by the grace of God, I had previously spent a lot of time placed in those green pastures and enjoyed time beside those still waters. I had built relationships that provided a support group that was willing to take my hand and lead me out of the fog and back to the place where I could hear his voice and his truth. I was blessed to have a support group willing to gently remind me to lean into him and to hold fast to Jesus in order for me to regain my strength. During my troubled time of grief, I discovered that his sheep do know his voice, even in the fog. To help me recover from my personal tragedy, I needed to have an understanding and a knowledge of his promises. Even with my loss taking front and center in my thoughts, I still remembered that he sees me, he hears me, and he loves me. And there's a sweetness in knowing that Jesus, that we are forever held and completely loved. And once you understand this truth that's been tucked away deep within your heart, it becomes easier to hold fast to him when the time arrives. So as we practice holding fast to Jesus in the good times, as well as in our difficult circumstances, we need to worship him. As worship reminds our broken hearts and our shaky knees that we serve a mighty God who is loving and most able to handle anything that we could bring before him. Our worship both calms us, it strengthens us, 
and it prepares us for what lies ahead in our lives. Jesus is the only one who can calm an anxious heart and give hope to a desperate soul. Only he can shine a light in the middle of your darkest moments and hold you tight. You see, all situations that arrive into our lives have a spiritual potential. And if we are open and ready, we'll discover the insight into how we can honor and glorify Christ through that situation. As you're listening today, whether you're holding fast through a tight grip in the middle of your own earthquake or holding fast daily as you're walking beside still waters, Either way, you can know that he's got you. Thank you. Good morning. I'm Dawn Coons, and I'm a farm girl. I'm married to Farmer Craig, and we have four children. I love to plan for the farm. I love to handle the financials of the farm. I strategize about new opportunities. I'm the treasurer of the PTO. I teach Sunday school. I help with church luncheons. I lead a group in habits. I do the laundry for our house. I cook for my family. I clean up dirt off the floor. I cook for my family. I do laundry. I clean up dirt off the floor. I schedule appointments. I run kids to appointments. I schedule more appointments. I make a grocery list. I buy groceries. I forget something at the grocery, and I go back to the grocery. I clean up more dirt off the floor. But all of these things are not my identity. Will you please stand? Put everything down. Get yourself comfortable. And if you'd like, close your eyes. Or just be still, look at the cross. Listen carefully to your identity, to who you are. You were made by an affectionately sovereign, perfectly good God who has unfailing wisdom. He created everything in the universe from the most beautiful sunrise to the loudest roar of the ocean. God made you in his own image after his likeness. You are a sinner, but you are redeemed by Christ. You have been made holy, morally and spiritually excellent through the sacrifice of the body of Christ. You are perfect forever. You are perfect, having all the required or desirable characteristics. You are good as it is possible to be in God's eyes because of Christ's sacrifice. You are completely free from faults or defects. You are complete. Your hearts are blameless in holiness before our God and Father, blameless, innocent of wrongdoing, guiltless, above reproach. God accepts you right now in this moment and forever. If you believe in Christ, you are accepted forever. You are regarded favorably 
approved. You are totally righteous because of faith in Christ. You are free from guilt of sin. You are morally right, justifiable. You are pure. If you believe in Christ and have accepted him as your Savior, you are pure in the eyes of God. You are untainted. You are free of any contamination. You are beautiful. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Because of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, God sees you as a beautiful woman. He smiles when he sees you. You are loved. Mightier than the waves of the sea is his love for you. God loves you with an everlasting, unfailing love. God has a deep, deep attachment to you. He finds pleasure in you. You are cherished. You are eternal. If you have accepted Christ, you will never die. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You will one day stand in the presence of the Almighty God. Let all the outside influences and cravings and desires fall off of you. Imagine yourself standing in front of the Almighty God, Abba Papa, the one who has more power and wisdom than anyone that has ever lived and ever will live, just you and God. He looks at you and smiles. You are his child, and he loves you completely. He loves you through and through and sees you as perfect. With Christ's sacrifice, you are perfect. Perfect, unblemished, beautiful. That is who you are. And if you've accepted Christ, it will never change. And one day your reward for walking faithfully in this journey of life will be to stand, but actually probably fall at the feet of the Almighty God, who is the holy, pure, loving, kind, gentle, and righteous Father. Please be seated. We know who we are by remembering who God is and what Jesus did and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So with this in mind, we understand our role in this world, our purpose, the reason we are here, the one and only reason, and it's to glorify God. So if that is who we are, then why do we tend to walk around with a different identity? Why do I tend to fixate on the identity I described in the beginning and think that that's who I am? That's not who I am. So because this is a workshop, I want it to be interactive, and we're going to work together on this. Um, first, let's look at our supreme example, Christ. Jesus knew who he was and lived the perfect life. So what did he do in his life to confirm his identity? Often, our actions and thoughts determine who we are or who we think we are. So, I want you to huddle up with someone, find somebody else to talk to or a couple someones and get together. And you have a sheet that has some spaces to fill out. So, as you huddle up, jot down on your handout 
how Christ confirmed his identity. And so we're going to look at his actions. What did Christ do in his life? Any example that we pull from scripture of what he did, okay? And then I want you to write down, how did that confirm his identity? Does that make sense? And we can work through it as we go. Can anybody do that? Okay, go. And bonus points if you have scripture to back it up. Okay, someone tell me one thing Christ did. Okay, he performed miracles. Good. Tell me how that confirms his identity. Proves he is. And how does it prove, who is he? Our Savior, or he's the Messiah. Yes. Yeah. Deity. Say that again. Deity. Deity. Okay. Okay. Okay, what else? Okay. And in a way, it, that kind of is this too. What else? Good. Father's will. How does that confirm his identity? Good. Yes. Good. Okay, so let's just use those couple. And then I want you to tell me, there are a couple of times in the Bible that people wanted Jesus to do something that would have destroyed his identity or taken away from what he was supposed to do. Tell me those times, times that he did not do what people told him to do. Okay, let's, um, let's take a couple of minutes. That's a perfect one. That's the one I wanted. Let's take a couple of minutes and talk. I want you guys to come up with things and think about how it confirms his identity. He performed miracles. He forgave sins and he did the father's will. He confirmed his identity by proving he is a savior or son of God, that he is deity, that he died on the cross he did God's will, not his own, and proved that he was God's son. <clears throat> that other people encouraged him to do. So, someone mentioned that he was tempted by Satan. So, Satan tempted him with um, food. Satan tempted him with um, having all the... Um, Places on earth would be his. Um, so he tempted him. How does he confirm his identity by not doing what Satan said? Mm -hmm. He quoted the word. And he didn't do it, right? He quoted the word and he, and he didn't do what Satan told him to do. So he was obedient. Okay, what else? 
Anybody think of anything else? Does anybody remember when Peter, when, the, uh, when they came for Jesus, what did Peter do? Peter cut off the ear. What was Peter trying to do by doing that? He what? To defend Jesus. Or Peter, I think, wanted to take everything by force because he knew Jesus could do it, right? If he started fighting, would Jesus be there behind him to fight and take over on earth now to get away from that oppressive Roman rule? So he confirmed his identity by not doing what other people wanted him to do. He did what God wanted him to do. Okay, so let's look at us then, as we move to us. So first, perform new miracles. Can you guys perform miracles? Okay, but what can you do? This was a gift from God. What is your gift from God? One person, name one of their gifts they have. Laura, what's a gift you have? Oh, you have so many. Your mother did the same thing, teaching. Okay, so Laura could take, take her teaching, teaching gift, and she could go to Yale and be the preeminent professor at Yale, and she could teach all that worldly, I'm sorry, that would be a miracle, and teach all that worldly stuff that Yale wants to teach, but she's not. What is she doing? She teaches here at Bible school for years. She's taught classes. She invests in the church. Now, that's not to say that she can't go to Yale and be the top teacher there and serve God, right? We all have a role, but God has given her this role. Is she confirming her identity by doing this? Okay, so on your little sheet, look at your little sheet. There's a place for you to write. What do you do in your life to confirm your identity? What gifts have you been given? Individually think about this yourself, and you can do this later too. What gift have you been given and are you using it for our ultimate purpose, which is to glorify God? Okay, next. He forgave sins. Let's go to the Father's will, because we're not going to forgive sins. But it's, it's within doing what he was called to do. So he did his Father's will. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. Okay. What is God's will for your life? In your life, does, does he have a path? And do we discern that? Do we call out for that? Do we seek that? Or do we walk along in life as it is? Do we take time to sit still? Misty. I'm thinking like if we suffer, but then use it to confirm our identity of Christ, or like we've accepted his will for us, and this is what, he, what our lot is, you might say, and then we use it Yes. So we yield to his will, not our own. What are times in your life that you haven't done that? When you buck against what he's brought to you. Um, last week, I am embarrassed to admit this, but I was, I was disappointed in God. I mean, I don't think I'd been in that place in, in my life before, and I was disappointed. And in his sovereignty, I am reading a book called Is God Really in Control? by Jerry Bridges, I think is the name. And, oh, was I humbled. Who am I to think that I know God's will? And Romans eleven thirty three, 
um, just really set in with me. And Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And in my other version, <clears throat> in my um, NIV version, it says, how untraceable are his ways. And I'm a figure-outer. I love to figure things out. Oh, this happened because of this. <clears throat> or this happened because of this. Or I think this is going this way. That is all messed up. Because we cannot figure out God. We need to sit and rest in what he has brought us. And do you see how I have changed my identity by thinking that I know better than God? I have raised myself and inflated myself into something I am not because I've taken my eyes off of God and put them on myself and what I think I can figure out. So in all of these things, we can go down through. Okay, Satan, was, Satan tempted Jesus with food and Jesus responded by quoting the word. What are we tempted with in our lives? Name something that you're tempted with. Gossip. Gossip, great. So we're tempted by gossip. Okay, what does gossip do? It hurts people. So we're not obeying his command of loving one another, right? Um, the other thing um, gossip does, it's, it's disobedience, right? He says specifically in his word not to gossip. So it's disobedience. So when we are tempted to do things that are encouraged by Satan, we're going against our image and identity because the word, which is our identity, is um, not being followed and not being obeyed. And we're creating our own little identity over here that's apart from the word and apart from God and the image that we are made of in his likeness. Does that make sense? And that's a very abbreviated form of all the things that you can do to figure out what are you doing to taint your image, to allow you to not be the image bearer that we should be and the beautiful image bearer image that we are given by God. So just in closing, Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Ezekiel fell to his knees when he was in God's presence. Moses trembled. The Israelites begged not to be in his presence because of their sinful hearts and God's goodness. We have the privilege of drawing near to the presence of God every day if we have accepted Christ. If you haven't accepted Christ, it's time. Our identity is that we are children of the Most High God. We are loved by this awe-inspiring God. That is who we are. Stand up and claim your inheritance. Claim your identity. Thank you.